0: Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I think we all need to text our friends with a little resurrection reminder. <laughs> Jesus is risen. How about you? <laughs> I'm just glad it wasn't me this year who forgot. Yeah. Pastor Bob had a bet gone that I was one of the ones who forgot. His, If you were here yesterday, his sharky heart. <laughs> Remember that? We had a great seminar yesterday. For those of you that missed out, I'm sure you'll be hearing more about it, and we're looking forward to continuing to grow in our applications of the gospel. So if you're here today visiting with us, we have extra Bibles. Our ushers will be glad to give you one. But for all of us, if you'll turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 10, we're in the midst of a study of the book of Romans. And if you are just joining with us, You have to go back and watch the previous episodes. They're on our website. You can listen to the messages if you're so inclined. But the place we are in the book of Romans is a really interesting place because Paul's dealing with a, a, a difficult subject, and that is God had made these wonderful promises of salvation to the Jewish people. I mean, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know the Jews are God's chosen people. And the question that he's wrestling with is, why are the Jewish people not receiving God's salvation? People ask that all the time. Why don't Jewish people receive God's salvation? And what Paul was concerned about is that there would be a tendency to blame God for this one. Like, God doesn't keep his word. He said he's going to bless the nation of Israel. They're going to be the great nation. So Romans 9 through 11, by by many Bible teachers, is called a section of vindication where, where we're defending and proving that it's not God's fault that Jews aren't being saved. It's the Jews' fault. So think Romans 9-11 is a whole unit on what is God doing with Jews and why are so many Gentiles getting saved and why are so few Jews getting saved today? Now, in the midst of that, today Paul's going to, going to answer a question that we all struggle with. You, you, you've all had this as parents Told your kids to do something. And when they didn't do it, they had two very clever excuses. Either I didn't hear you or I didn't know. And Paul's actually going to ask those two questions about the Jews. He's going to ask, is the Jews lack of accepting Christ because they didn't hear or because they didn't know? And his answer is going to be this, that the Jews... Apparent ignorance is really obstinance. Let me say that again. Apparent ignorance, in this passage, Paul's going to say, is really obstinance. In fact, I heard a parenting seminar where a guy answered, you know, because that's frustrating. What do you, how do you discipline your kids when they go, oh, I didn't hear you? So this one guy who was teaching, he said, here's what I did. I started telling my children, well, from now on, I'm not necessarily going to discipline you because... You didn't do what I said because you didn't listen carefully. And he said their hearing improved immediately. It was like Jesus had touched their hearing and they were healed. So this subject is interesting because right now perhaps some of you, if you've been following the news, have heard Maria Sharapova come out with this apparent heartfelt apology that she didn't know that the um, steroids that she was using were illegal. Now, there's a lot of, is that right, Sharpova, or is it? It is Sharpova, right? Yeah. Uh, then I'm going, is it not Sharpova? Because somebody looking at me, oh, I didn't hear about it. So it's a big deal. She made this apology, and everybody's like, oh, wow, she's so forthright. Why can't everybody be let? But now there's information coming out that she received four emails warning her to stop using that. And so we all sort of go, is it really ignorance or is it Obstinance. And, and I'm not casting a judgment either way. All I'm saying is, yeah, we, we see that's how life often works. People can go, I didn't hear, I didn't know. So here's where we left off. Last week we saw that Paul said God is not saving many Jews right now. Presently he's saving a lot of Gentiles and few Jews. But then we learned that the reason that he's saving few Jews is because they refuse to submit to the gospel. They will not bow and believe in Messiah. So the final thing that we saw last week is that salvation in this age is, is freely offered to Jews and Gentiles. Paul said in verse 12 of chapter 10, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. He's abounding in riches to anyone who calls upon him. Whoever calls on the Lord will be saved. And that's where he left off last week. So this morning we'll pick up in 10 verse 14. Now, one thing I want you to note that Paul does here, it, it's it's it seems irrational, is that he keeps toggling back and forth between two topics. And these two topics seemingly are impossible to rationalize. He toggles back and forth between election and human responsibility. So in chapter nine, when he says, why aren't the Jews being saved? He talks about election and he says, because God can have mercy on whomever he has mercy. He doesn't need to have mercy on anybody. So he said, it's not depending on the man's will, but on God who shows mercy. And and our minds are troubled by that. We're like, well, then how can he find fault? But then he toggles immediately to the subject of human responsibility. And he says, look, if people don't accept Christ, it's completely their fault. And we're going, those two can't fit together. And so Thomas Schreiner calls it, it's not rational, it's supra-rational. I can't understand how God can say to a Christian, The reason you're saved is because I chose you, and I saved you. But then he says to an unbeliever, the reason you're not saved is you willfully refuse to come to Christ. Don't let that, like, cause you to get stressed out. Both are true. And so Paul's going primarily here with human responsibility in 10, 16 through 21. Then we're going to look at chapter 11, where he's going to go back to election. So there's two things we're going to look at. Number one, and if you're taking notes, in in chapter 10, 16 to 21, Paul's going to say, Israel's apparent ignorance is really obstinance, okay? So let's pray, and, and we'll look. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that your spirit will help us to understand the gospel and how this applies to us today as a church, as we're growing together in our application of the gospel to our lives, in Jesus' name, And for his glory we pray, amen. So Paul asks in verse 14, how shall they call upon him? If the only way to get saved is to call on Jesus, how shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And, And frankly, how can they believe in him if they've never heard of him? And how are they going to hear about him without someone preaching and proclaiming and telling them? And how can someone go and preach and proclaim good news unless they're sent? And then he quotes from Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Now I want to start with a side question that I get asked all the time. Is it possible for someone to be saved who's never heard about Jesus? I mean, after all, there's many unreached people out there who have never heard the gospel. Surely God would not condemn people who have never heard the gospel. And I would say, Whoever has told you that while that might sound sensible is not biblical. The Bible in many passages makes it very clear that the only way a person can enter the kingdom of God is through faith in Jesus. Jesus said in John 14:6, "I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to God but through me." In Acts 4:12, Peter said, "There's salvation in nobody else." There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The name of Jesus. And here Paul says, how can people be saved if they don't hear about Jesus? If God had another option, then I would actually say we should never do missions. We should never go to unreached people because the Bible teaches the more revelation of God that you reject, the harsher your judgment." So when Jesus came to people in his day, he said to the city of Chorazin, Woe to you, your judgment will be far worse. Because if I did the miracles that I did among you in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Therefore, in the day of judgment, it's going to be more tolerable for them. So if indeed it was possible for people to be saved without hearing about Jesus, then don't go and double damn them. Just hope that through natural creation, they'll go, Oh God, I believe in you. Some of you are going, I struggle with that. We'll go back to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1 says, people don't have to hear anything about the Bible, for the invisible things of God are clearly seen, and they have suppressed that, and they're without excuse. However, I will say this. If there is someone anywhere on this earth that God is calling and they're seeking, then he will get the gospel to them. He won't bypass the gospel and say, well, you know, they did the best they could. God can get the gospel to them however he wants. If you're following Muslim missions, you're finding that many Muslims are having dreams about Jesus. The book of Revelation talks about a time where an angel will come and preach the gospel from midheaven. And there are historical stories of missionaries who have gone to unreached people group, and the people are like, we knew you were coming. There was even a World War I pilot who was shot down over a tribal group and lived with them for years, learned their language, and brought the gospel to them. So it's not like God's going, Oh, I have some people from there, but darn, they can't hear about Jesus, so I'll just skip it and I'll save them anyway. So Paul's giving a logical progression. People need to hear a message of the gospel. But remember, his context is the Jews. So in verse 15, he quotes from Isaiah. Now look at verse 15. He says, in essence, he's saying, how are these Jewish people going to get saved unless someone brings the good news to them? So he quotes Isaiah 52 in verse 7. Now, in Isaiah 52 and 53, God is announcing a coming salvation to his Jewish people. He's announcing that his servant Messiah will come and will be beaten and will sprinkle many nations. And then Isaiah is going to say, Yeah, but who's going to believe this report? So when Paul quotes this verse, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things! His point here is not to solidify, oh, people have to be sent theoretically. His point here is, they have been sent. This book is being written now some 30 years after the gospel has come, and the gospel message has disseminated all over the world. In Colossians, Paul says, the gospel has gone out into all the earth. So here's the point Paul's making. The gospel has gone out, and it is reaching all over the earth, and therefore... The Jewish people who have the scriptures are inexcusable. So he quotes again, however, they, now commentaries differ. Does they here mean Gentiles and Jews, or does it just mean Jews? And I personally think it's primarily talking here about Jews. However, they, the Jews who have had the gospel preached to them, did not all heed the glad tidings. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? Now, when he uses the word did not all, this is interesting. I, 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 I learned a new word, um, matosis, which is, is an understatement. Because his point all along is very few Jews are believing But then he goes, well, not all the Jews believe. You're like, yeah, that's an understatement. Because the reality is very few of the Jews believe. So here's Paul's point. The gospel has gone to the Jews, and they haven't believed it. But he wants to reinforce this. The only way people can be saved is they have to hear this message of the crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And they have to repent and believe in him. So he says in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, technically, this is a true statement. Matthew Henry pointed out, hearing or reading. In other words, there have been people, I've known of people, two people, that no one told them the gospel. They just got hold of a Bible and reading it on their own, they came to Christ. But the point here is that for people to enter the kingdom of God, they'll never intuitively know this on their own. Someone has to bring them the information about Christ, the word of Christ, the message about Jesus, that he was crucified, raised from the dead, he's Lord of all, he's God, and you need to call upon him and ask him to save you. Now Paul comes back to this Jewish, is it ignorance or it is obstinate? So he says in verse 18, but I say, surely they, those Jews have have never heard. Have they? And Paul goes, no, indeed, they have. But then he does something really odd. He quotes a verse to prove that Jews have heard that would have been a verse that I would go, Paul, that, that's not the point of that verse. He quotes from Psalm 19. He goes, you want me to prove to you that the Jews have heard the gospel? Psalm 19 says this, their voice has gone out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now, when you first read that, you're like, yeah, they have heard the gospel's gone out. But if you were to go back and read Psalm 19, and I want to encourage you to do that. Psalm 19 is a really important psalm, and this is for those of you that want to go deeper. Psalm 19 is all about how God gives information about himself to people. We call it revelation, okay? Okay. And there's two ways that God reveals himself to people. One is through creation. And we call that natural revelation. That's available to everybody. There's no no select few. So so the idea is that you can look around in the universe and there's plenty of clues about God. So in Romans 1 it says the invisible things of God are clearly seen. Well, Psalm 19 is about that. Psalm 19 says this. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Their expanse... Is, is declaring the work of his hands. And then Psalm 19, when it's talking about the heavens, says, their voice has gone out in all the earth. And then he goes, it's not, it's not literal speech or words, but it's a message. So you're going, okay, but that's natural revelation. That's not the gospel. People can't get saved by that. And this is the interesting thing. and This is a good psalm to teach your children. Psalm 19, the first half is how God reveals himself to people through creation, but that won't save them. Right in the middle of Psalm 19, he then turns and he says, But the law of God, the word of God, is what converts the soul. And the rest of Psalm 19, every single verse, is about the Bible. The statues of the Lord are pure. The commandments of the Lord are enlightening. They're sweeter than honey. We're warned by them. So Psalm 19 basically says there's two ways God reveals himself to people. Through natural revelation, the heavens, everybody. And then through special revelation, the word of God. And this is what you need to hear to be saved. Does that make sense? So I would have thought Paul would have quoted the second half of Psalm 19 and say, yeah, the Jews have heard the gospel. They've heard the word of God. But instead... He quotes from the first half of Psalm 19, which is about general revelation. He goes, the Jews have heard about Christ. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And so most commentators feel like all Paul's doing here is he's using this verse with a different application here. He's not saying Jews know the gospel because they can see it in the heavens. He's saying the gospel has been heard by Jews because apostles and messengers have gone around and they've heard the word of God. But notice verse 19. He's going to go further. Well, they didn't hear. Remember, so there's your kids. Well, oh, I didn't hear. Yes, you did. Well, then you go, uh, classic teenager, why'd you do this? I don't know, right? Did you know that's wrong? No, I didn't know, right? So Paul's not even going to let him off the hook with just willful, oh, I didn't hear. Look at verse 19. But, but I say, surely, surely Israel didn't know. They, they didn't know the gospel, did they? And Paul goes, well, actually, they did. And interestingly, when he says in verse 19, they didn't know, like if I just walked up to you and said, I'm sorry, I didn't know, you would be like, neither do I. Like, you didn't know what? Okay, so Paul's point here, and this is really important when he says, Surely Israel didn't know, he's going further than just saying they didn't know the gospel. He's actually going to say this it's inexcusable for Israel to say, number one, that I didn't know the gospel, and number two, that God was going to start saving a bunch of Gentiles. Because what happened when the apostles would go out, they would always go to the Jews, go to the synagogue, preach to the Jews. Most of the Jews would reject it, and Paul would then turn to the Gentiles, right? And so what Paul's going to say here is don't let the Jews off the hook by going, well, they didn't know God was going to save Gentiles, and they didn't know that God was mad at them because they weren't listening because he goes, that's exactly what their Bible says. So look with me in verse 19. Surely Israel didn't know. Now, again, I'm saying know the gospel and know about Gentiles. And Paul goes, yeah, they should have known, because at the first, Moses said this, and he's quoting from Deuteronomy 32. In the Old Testament, way back in the beginning, when Moses gave the law, in Deuteronomy, at the, at the second generation, he goes, God told me this, most of you people are going to turn away from God, and so God's going to turn to the Gentiles. So so look what Paul says. The Jews knew that God's going to turn to Gentiles. Moses said, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding, I will anger you. They knew that God was going to reach other nations. Verse 20. And Isaiah is very bold. And he says, I was found by those who sought me not. And I, Now notice this phrase. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Now, do you see the subtle undertones of election there? The Jews weren't seeking God. I mean, the Gentiles weren't seeking God. When they were worshiping idols, they weren't going, but we really want you, God. They were just dead and blind. But God says, I was found by them who weren't even seeking for me. Why were they found? He goes, I became manifest. In other words, it wasn't man seeking me. I revealed myself to these Gentiles. But then notice verse 21. He goes, but as for Israel, and this is the point that Paul's making here. He says, and you can mark this down. Jewish people today are not coming to Christ because they don't know. It's not ignorance. It's obstinance. Look at verse 21. But as for Israel, this is what God says. And this is another quote from Isaiah. All day long have I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So God's not up there going, the poor Jewish people, they don't even know. And, and, and they, they never heard. He's going, Yeah, they have. Now, now that sounds harsh, like, like, wow, you, you, how long will you hold out your hand to someone who's gone, I don't want you, I don't want you, I don't want you. My arm gets tired, right? It's hard enough to keep extending patience to your kids, let alone to your enemies, right? So this ought to stir within us a wonder at the mercies of God that he loves you. These are my people. I chose you of all the nations of the earth. I knew you. I foreknew you. I elected you. I called you. I've given you these wonderful promises and I beg you to come to Messiah and you killed my Messiah. But yet I still hold out my hands to you and you're obstinate and you're hard and you refuse to come to Christ. That's their fault. Now, Paul leads us to the next section where he goes, well, gosh, if they're that stubborn and that ignorant, why doesn't God just drop back and punt them? (laughs) Why doesn't he just say, fine, I'm done with you, Jews. Of all people, you've had the most privileged opportunities. You've had my promises. You've had my presence, and that's it. And so Paul anticipates. We're going, yeah, kick them out, God. But instead, look at verse 1 of chapter 11. I say then, God hasn't rejected his people, has he? Did he punt them? And you know what's sad, folks? Is there a lot of Christians who believe that. They believe that God is done permanently with the nation of Israel. This is called replacement theology. And the idea is that the church has replaced Israel. But here's the key. Permanently. So, so many Christians believe that whatever's going on over in Israel, it doesn't matter one lick because God is finished with them. Don't pray for them any more than anybody else. Don't expect any prophetic fulfillments. God's done with them. And the point of Romans 11 is no. God has not rejected them, but he has temporarily set them aside to bring in a whole boatload of Gentiles. But there's going to come a day when he's gonna reach out and he's gonna save the entire nation that's still alive on earth. All right, so let's look at chapter 11. I say then, God hasn't rejected the Jews, has he? He just finished saying, they're not ignorant, they're obstinate, but God's not done with them. And Paul gives two proofs that God's not done with Jews. He goes, exhibit A, look at me. If God were done with Jews, then how come I'm saved? So he says, God's not done with Jews. I, too, am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, I don't want you to forget that word foreknew. If I were were to quiz you, I'd say, where did we see that idea before that God predestines people whom he foreknew? It's back in chapter 8. But I want to remind you what that word means. It doesn't mean that God just looked ahead in time and he said, ooh, look, Israel's going to pick me. I foreknew that they were going to pick me, so I'll pick them. It's not what foreknowledge means. When God knows someone, it means that he sets his love upon them. It's his elective choice. So, for example, in Amos 3.2, God said to the nation of Israel, you alone I have known of all the nations of the earth. You alone, Jewish people. So there's nothing passive about that kind of knowledge where God goes, I knew you're going to pick me. I didn't know about any other nation. So when, when Paul says here, God has not rejected his people wh- whom he foreknew, there's, there's an elective choice here. And I know that that's troublesome. Like, wait, God picks who's going to be saved? It's not fair. And God's going, it's not fair for me to have mercy on people who don't deserve mercy. It's not fair for me to pass over others. So, Paul says, exhibit A, I'm a Jew. Therefore, God has not completely rejected Jews. Then he says, exhibit B. Back in the Old Testament, Elijah had the same misconception. God's finished with the Jews. I'm the last one that believes in God. God. And God goes, uh, I don't think so. So let's look. He says, don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? It's a fascinating story. Remember, God uses Isaiah to call fire down from heaven, and they slaughter a whole bunch of prophets of Baal. But then Elijah has a mental lapse of faith, and he runs terrified from Jezebel, and we're going... Elijah, God just called fire down from heaven. He's clearly for you. Why are you running like a little baby from Jezebel? God is with you. But in his fear, he gets alone with God and he goes, Lord, they've killed all your prophets and I'm the only one left. And God says, verse 4, what was the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, God didn't record this, but if you were Elijah, wouldn't you have one more question with God? You're out there holding your own, and there's nobody standing with you. You're preaching, repent and stop worshiping Baal. You Jews, knock it off. Turn to God. Nobody's listening. Everybody's following Baal. And so Elijah goes, there's not another saved person in the whole country. And God goes, yeah, there are. He goes, Don't you know I have 7,000? What would you ask God? Where are they? Where are they? That's a good question, right? Because sometimes I think that this is true of Christians. There's probably more people out there who are believers in the workplace, in the schools, in their neighborhoods. And nobody even knows. Well, are they nice people? Oh, they're really nice people. They just witness by their life. See, people don't come to God simply by being a nice person. We have to identify ourselves with Christ. We don't have to go out and beat people over the head, but we have to confess Jesus and invite people to turn to Jesus. But the point here is that God, notice the, notice the way God words this. He didn't say, I happen to know that there was going to be some people out there who would still believe in me. He says, I kept for myself 7,000. They didn't come running to me going, pick me, God. He picked them. He left them and kept them for his remnant. And Paul goes, so, so here you go. Back in Elijah's day... He thought he was the only one. And God goes, no, no, no. I have a a remnant that I have elected. Now Paul goes fast forward back to his day, verse 6. In the same way then, there has also come at the present time a remnant. So Paul goes, yeah, there's not a whole lot of Jews saved. This is why I often say, hey, how many people here are are a Jewish messianic believer? And we might have a couple hands go up and we go, what? What? Where's all the Jews? Why isn't God saving a million of them? Because right now, he says, I'm only bringing out a remnant according to my gracious electing choice. Now, does that mean don't waste your time with Jews? Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. Paul said in Romans 1, the gospel's to the Jew first. He said in Romans 10, I pray night and day for their salvation. We should have a burden for Jews. But we should not expect that there will be millions of Jews saved right now. And and Paul goes out of his way to say, let's make sure you understand what grace is. Grace is more than just, you don't work for your salvation. Grace even means that the only reason you're saved is because of God's electing grace. Now, that's offensive to some people. They go, no, no, no. God knew I was going to believe well, well, if, then if he picked you because of something you were going to do, then it's not grace. It's, it's your yogi bear smarter than other bears. If it's all grace, I don't go, God picked me because he knew I would believe. It's, wow, God picked me. That's why I believe. In a few moments, we're going to sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Do you, do, do you think to yourself that the reason that Christ is precious to you is because God knew that you were going to think him precious, so he said, come here, man, you're smarter than the rest of them. Paul goes, it's got to be electing grace. It's all of grace. So there's one reason why I'm saved, completely of grace. Even my faith is from God. It's nothing that we did. You're like, that sounds like my human birth. I didn't have any part in it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what the new birth is. You repent and believe because God elected you. So Paul says in verse 6, if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, it's no longer grace. Either God gets all the credit for my salvation, or am I really saved by grace? So Paul, you're like, Paul, you're, you're, you're back and forth. Is it because of election? Or is it because of free will? And he's going, it's both. So verse 7, what then? That which Israel is seeking for, it has not obtained... But those who were chosen obtained it. This is a difficult verse. The rest were hardened. And I wrestled with that. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. Why would God harden people? But I came to this resolution. These Jewish people that God hardened were not going like this. I want to be saved. I want to be saved. I want to be saved. And God goes, nope, I'm hardening you. They didn't want to be saved. They're obstinate. They're dead in their sins. They refuse to submit to Christ. And God simply locks them into a permanent position of hardening. It's not like they were sweet, soft, tender, seeking God. And he goes, nope, I'm going to change your heart so you don't seek me. They're rebellious and obstinate and disobedient. he goes, and I'm going to leave you that way. And I'm going to harden you. And and if, if you're struggling to understand that, think of demons. When Satan misled millions of demons to follow him, did it ever cross your mind why not a single demon has ever pled for mercy? Why not a single demon has said to Jesus, I changed my mind, man. I was wrong. I repent. Oh, take me back. Demons are hardened in their disposition. It's not like demons are going, Oh, Jesus, I want you. They're wicked. And they're locked in that position. And so in the same way, as I think about Jews, I'm going, God loves them. He dearly stretches out his hand to them. But in a mysterious way, he says, right now I'm only going to choose a few of them. The rest of them, I'm hardening them in their wickedness. And I go, that doesn't seem fair. And and God's going, that's not for you to figure out. They're going to hell and it's their fault. They're obstinate and disobedient. And then Paul quotes a couple verses to show this. Verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Now, here's the thing. Don't think that their eyes were like, I'm looking at you, God, I love you. And God goes, well, guess what? I'm going to strike you blind. They already had no eyes to see. They already were hardened. And then you're like, Dave, why the harshness, man? You had no coffee this morning? Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm, and I want to encourage you to read Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is all about Jesus. But at the end of the psalm, David thinks of how the Jews have become obstinate enemies of God. And so he pronounces on them this curse for their rebellion. He says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Now you go, what the heck is that talking about? Well, number one, tables back then were not this high. Tables back then were like this high. Jews ate laying down. People in the Middle East ate laying down, and they had little tables, right? And a table is a place of blessing, right? A table is where you you gather to enjoy fellowship and eat with your loved ones. The place of blessing, the Messiah, the, the tabernacle, the temple, the people of God, the promises of the Old Testament... Our Jews' table. And David says, let their table become a stumbling block. So they just walk along, and instead of going, a feast of Messiah, they're like, they trip over the table. Now, Paul's going to go on next week. We're going to learn, he says, but they didn't stumble to fall. They didn't fall permanently. But then he says one other thing. He says, let their, backs be, their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. And I'm like, what? I misread this for a long time. I pictured this. Bend their backs forever. But it doesn't say bend them backward forever. Bend their backs. This. And here's the problem. If that's how you get saved and your back is bent, you're preoccupied with stuff down here When you ought to be preoccupied with stuff up there. And this is the beauty of what it means to be a Christian. Because all of us have our backs bent when we're born. Because all we're worried about is stuff down here. But in the mercies of God, he reveals Messiah to us. And we look up here. And we call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And remember what we talked about last week? You don't just do that once. You don't go, oh, last time I talked to Jesus was when I got saved. That's the rest of my life. He's straightened me up so I can see Jesus, and now I call upon him hard, fast, and continuously. And the longer I'm the Christian, the more I need to call upon him, the more I want to call upon him, the more I should call upon him, the more I need the gospel every day. And so we're going, wow, Paul, this is, this is heavy-duty stuff. Can't we just do John 3.16 and you have an altar call? And Paul's going, no, I want to I teach you the whole counsel of God, the meat of the word. This is strong stuff. So let me, let me close with some applications here because you're like, wow. So we'll just review. Israel today is not being saved, not because of ignorance, because of obstinance. They have heard the gospel message. And by the way, as often as you can, try to talk to Jews. They're not aliens. We've got a Passover Seder coming up. Invite them, right? I asked, uh, I've got a Jewish dentist. Remember when we had a Jewish rabbi here? He goes, don't act like you don't know Jews. you got lawyers, doctors, and dentists, right? You all know them. <laughs> he said it, so he can get away with that, right? <laughs> so I was asking my Jewish dentist, why don't, why don't Jews believe in Messiah? Engage them. You know, what are you waiting for? What promises about Messiah are you going, oh, that can't be about Jesus? Engage them in the scriptures. So they're obstinate. And then Paul says, but there's a reason for that. God hasn't rejected them. He's just narrowed down a remnant right now. And, and so he's only electing a few. But don't miss, you're like, well, what does this have to do with me? I'm a Gentile. You know what I mean? That's where you and I got to go, wow, I became found by those who didn't seek me. Wow, God, thank you. I don't mind joining the woman who goes, Jesus goes, I'm here for the Jews. I can't give the children's bread to the dogs. And she goes, give me the crumbs. Even dogs get crumbs. I'm grateful. Aren't you for the mercy of God that's extended to the world now? That the gospel's gone out all over the world. So let me give you four or five things to think about. Things that, that, that stood out to me. Number one, Paul says, how should they preach unless they be sent? And you go, where do missionaries come from? Who sends them? Well, huh. um... God sends them. But how does he send them? He sends them through churches. So I want to read a brief uh, excerpt that Austin had asked me to share. We've been talking about this. There's over 4,000 unreached people groups today, and it's our duty as Christians to bring the gospel to them. And we believe that the local church is the primary agent that raises up and sends workers. That's why we're sending a team to New York to evangelize Muslims. We're sending a team to Holland to evangelize atheists. But discipleship to the ends of the earth starts with discipleship here. And that's why we have what we're calling, many of you have heard, and it's not new. We're just continuing to grow our World Reach team. And so over the last year, the World Reach team has restructured, strengthening something that's really important our own missionary development. See, in the past, if someone felt called to missions, Churches would say, fine, just go find a mission agency. And we've come to the realization that, no, the church has a large impact in developing and sending people. So if you feel the Spirit of the Lord working in your heart and you're interested in some form of global evangelism, and believe me, it doesn't mean you have to put on a a pith helmet and go to Africa and preach the gospel. You may business in missions, teaching English in other countries. But if you feel stirred about missions, speak or see Austin Delgado or Bob... Cohen to get a better idea how we're raising up missionaries. We've been strengthening. World team's been going on for years, and we're strengthening this model as a sending model. And, And Austin writes, we want to be part of your journey in developing. We have great resources and connections. So if God's tugging at your heart, and you're like, well, how do you get sent? Come and talk to us. Talk to them. All right, second thing. Austin will be pleased. I read his announcement. Don't forget this. When Paul says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, the word of God is powerful. So listen, many of you have kids and you're like, my kids aren't saved yet and I'm so troubled about it. Your job is not to save people. I can't save people. Our job is to get the word of God to them. So while they might not jump up and down eagerly to memorize scripture, can I encourage you to encourage your children to memorize scripture? Even though they have no idea what they're saying, God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son. Don't worry about that right now. Get the word of God into their little hearts and patiently pray for them and teach them. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, from childhood, grandparents, from childhood, you've known the holy scriptures that make you wise to salvation. So pray for all of our Sunday school teachers. And by all means, you don't need to be clever at apologetics. If you have a friend that in any way is open, get them into the Bible. Right? Don't go, oh, i got to find the best book in the world for them. Here's the best book in the world for them. Faith comes by hearing and have confidence that this book can powerfully change. You know, People will say to me, well, don't be telling me the Bible. I don't believe the Bible. And I say, even if you don't believe it, let me just tell you what it says. Because I know what God says about his word. It won't return void. So let's continue to be a praying church that the word of God will spread and powerfully reach people for the glory of God. Third, real quick before we sing. Remember this, that willful ignorance is dangerous when the Jews go, we did not know. Because there's a whole lot of people that sit in churches week after week and they pull the same thing. Well, I I didn't really know, you know, or I'll do it later. That's a dangerous place to be. Don't ever confuse God's patience with his absence. There will come a day when God will say, that's it. And the Lord's coming back. And so while you have opportunity, don't plead ignorance, repent. And then, you know what else is cool? I like verse 6 of chapter 11 when God says, or verse um, 4, I've kept for myself. That's what's so cool about being a believer, and even the doctrine of election, is you didn't pick God. He picked you. And he that began a good work in you, the Bible says, will perform it to the day of Christ. That's comforting. So cling to Jesus with all your heart. But remember this, he's clinging to you. And he will never let go what we just sang. He said to Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I prayed for you so your faith won't fail. Take encouragement today. You might be struggling. If you feel like giving up, don't give up. And recognize that God is keeping you. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, we're kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed. Praise God for his grace. And finally, if you're a believer, keep that mentality in your mind, Because I hate this about myself. There are days where this is how I live. My back is bent. Oh no, Tom. It's the cares of this world, the troubles, the desire for other things. And a day goes by and I didn't pray. And a day goes by and Jesus hardly passed across my screensaver. The Bible says every day we're to set our affections on Christ and things above. And one of the best ways to do that is just to pray often. Don't make excuses and say, well, I don't have a private time of prayer. I just pray in my have a private time of prayer and then pray throughout the day. But let's pray that as a church, we won't be a church like this worried about stuff. We're a church like this. Together, we're calling on the name of the Lord. And so let's close. Benjamin's going to come and let's sing together this beautiful hymn as we celebrate the fact that it is by God's grace that we've become interested in the Savior's blood. We were dead in our sins but God brought us to himself.
1: Let's stand and sing, And Can It Be. die for me, amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me, he left his father's throne above, so free so is self of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless grace. Tis mercy all immense and Quickening ray, I woke the dungeon, flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. Amazing love, how can it be that Thou? die for me no condemnation now I dread Jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine Born I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou my God shouldst die?